Because what you were taught in school, what you were taught in college, what the textbooks say, what the Discovery Channel tells us is something very different. So we had some doubt. Um, most of us were taught, I'm right there, most of us were taught that the uh, science and the Bible could not mesh. They kind of butted heads. It was like a square peg in a round hole. Um, and really all we're trying to accomplish or all we have tried to accomplish in this series is simply, you know, not arguing. We're not trying to argue with science. We're not trying to argue with anyone's belief system. Because quite honestly, what we have been talking about these last few weeks, it's really not a salvation issue. You can be a follower of Jesus regardless of what you uh, believe about creation and the flood and, and all of that. Really, all we're trying to walk out of here at the end of this worship experience this morning is simply to say, it's possible. It's, it's, it's plausible that the Genesis account, the historical account in the Bible, it's possible that, that that's the way that it could have happened. It's possible. Uh, we've got a timeline up here. You can't really see some of it because of Harley's big head. But um, we've got this timeline that we've kind of walked through over the course of the last few weeks. And we kind of started with creation, this in the beginning God, the first seven days of creation. And then we went from there and we talked about a man by the name of Noah and his wife, uh, Noah, not another. And with the creation around them and with God. And then we talked about how something changed. There's this fall. Uh, they, they sinned. They messed up. They didn't follow God's law and all of a sudden we go into this time period where Adam and Eve's children uh, Cain, Abel, Seth would have been born and a man that by the name of Noah would have been born and it would have been uh, a world that was much different than what we understand and it would have been pretty rough it would have been a pretty scary world that Noah was born into and in fact it was so bad that when Noah is about 600 years old he is 600 years old God basically says you know what we're shutting it down. I'm done. We're fixing a remake. We're fixing a reform what has already been created. And God tells Noah, build an ark. And then he tells Noah to fill an ark. Then he tells Noah to go into the ark. And we're really not given just a ton of details. We know uh, some things, but we're not given a ton of details about this. And we know that after Noah goes into the ark and the animals are on the ark, we know that this thing, this global cataclysmic worldwide flood happened that there is things happening on the earth that we cannot comprehend. And that really, I guess, kind of brings us up to today. It kind of brings yeah, us to where we're at right gets, now. It gets us to this point right yeah. now because the flood has started. You got us to this point. And then here's really where we're going to land today. This last thing on our clothesline timeline is that the flood basically lasts for one whole year and then... Uh, it's dry enough, there's an area dry enough for them to step off the ark. So we are picking up the story today, this bit of history. And I like what you said a moment ago. We don't have a lot of information about this. What we have are some anchor points that God has given us in his word, historical anchor points. And now it is left to the really smart guys, not me, maybe Cole, but certainly not me. It's left to the really smart guys, these geologists and scientists and biologists, using these anchor points to then interpret the data that we have out here all around us. And that's kind of what we have been trying to do, as Cole said, summarize some of that. Now, we began this by talking about this cataclysmic moment that most of us, if you're, well, if you're anything like me, we overlook this in scripture. And it's this phrase, I don't think I have it on the screen for you, but here is how the flood begins. The Bible says, the fountains of the deep were broken up. Now we kind of skip over that and we go straight to the rain. This that we skip over so frequently is a big deal. We don't know what all happened in that. That's just the anchor point that God has given us. But geologists and biologists, well, not with the biology part here. This is really the geologists and then the climate scientists. They have uh, a lot of work to do to help us gain some potential understanding. We talked about in week number one or two, week number two, we talked about how the fountains of the deep and this crust, this layer of the earth that's the crust that sits on the mantle, which is all magma, it's molten rock, it kind of floats on that magma. This layer 
somehow began to break up. Now, we do know this from science. Geologists tells us that, there, that there's just this unimaginable power located in the magma of the earth as it begins to erupt and also in the movement of these things called plates. Um, and these, the continents are divided up into like these puzzle pieces that fit together and work together and they slide against each other, they crash into each other. It's very possible that when the fountains of the earth were broken up, that along these plate boundaries, that amazing, bigger than we could ever imagine, volcanoes began to take place and earthquakes of unimaginable power began to take place. And this whole thing called tectonics, which is the, the movement of these continental and oceanic plates, began moving. Now today, those plates move at about centimeters a year. But it is so very possible that as these began to break up, as the flood was beginning, that they were not moving at centimeters uh, uh, per year. Instead, they were very likely moving at meters per second. And that was creating a catastrophic effect of what was happening here on the earth. These plates were ripping apart and volcanic mountains were emerging where they were coming apart. And that magma would just burst to the surface in unimaginably powerful, huge ways. And then some of the other plates, some were moving apart, some were sliding past each other, and others were crashing into each other and, and moving upwards now uh, into the water as the earth was becoming uh, a flooded topography all the way around. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 7, verse 23 and 24, here's how devastating it was. God wiped out, this was his plan, every living thing on the earth people, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and the birds of the sky. The Bible says all were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him on the boat, and the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. But again, different and contrary, and for many of us, kind of the way we were taught this topic, specifically in church, um, it wasn't just a 150-day event. Now, those 150 days were intense, no question about it. They, it would have had to have been. Uh, but it wasn't just a 150-day event. It, it's actually a one-year-long process that is described. The height of the water apparently peaked at five months, at 150 days. But there's going to be another seven months where all of these uh, uh, geologic activities are, are going on where the earth is really reshaped. It's, yeah, it's reformed. He's not just destroying life. He's destroying, reshaping. Right. He's completely reshaping, remaking, reforming, however you want to phrase it, the earth, the yeah. entire thing. It's very different today than what it would have had to have been. Before, you say, well, how do you know? Well, I mean, we see it every day. We talked about Mount St. Helens a couple of weeks ago and what we witnessed at Mount St. Helens and how a very uh, small scale on this, when we're talking on this scope, how a small event like Mount St. Helens could completely reshape a micro environment. Um, so during that year-long flood, one of the great uh, geologic powers that was going on, of course, has to be erosion. Uh, there has to be incredible erosion that goes on during this, you know, year-long process. Thousands of feet of sediment and rock being eroded from the surface of the earth. Not only from the surface of the earth, but of course from the tops of mountains. A very interesting, we don't have time for it, but to look at the potential differences between the Appalachian Mountains and the Rocky Mountains and why they're different. Very interesting uh, if you're into geology and that type of thing. And all of that, all of these sediments, all of this uh, erosion would have naturally... It would have had to have been transported by giant underwater mudslides. Yeah. And so Cole talked about this sedimentation process, the laying back down. So if thousands of feet of sediment are being removed during the flood, then they have to be deposited and laid down somewhere. Cole somewhere. talked about this in week number three. Um, did you notice your little present here? <laughs> Cole, Cole talked about this in week three. And, we, and so we saw this 
as Cole mentioned, on a smaller scale at Mount St. Helens. Now, for us, it was big scale. <laughs> but on the scheme of the global scheme of the history of earthquakes and volcanoes, it was very tiny. Um, and, but seeing that with our own eyes and the scientists with their own eyes, we were able to better understand some of the formation of the Grand Canyon. Now, John and Melissa were at the Grand Canyon two weeks ago. They took this picture for us. I think, McKinley, there it is. That is their picture two weeks ago. The Grand Canyon, as of two weeks ago, was still there. And so there's our proof. I don't know about that today. Would, that'd, <laughs> but, be, that'd be awful to have like a Wally World experience in vacation where you get to the Grand Canyon. Oh, it's closed, sorry. I, Grand Canyon's closed. I did that with Six Flags. No kidding. I, I actually... I did that with six we'll flags. We'll talk about that in about 45 minutes because <laughs> I do want Dallas, to know. At Dallas. <laughs> it was horrible. Anyway, so Grand Canyon, still there. Um, now, this is so cool. If you, That's kind of we're looking at some of the top and then down there somewhere is the bottom. But some of the areas of the bottom of the Grand Canyon go lower than others. And I've got a picture here of two men standing on, that's, they're standing on some of this basement rock. And if McKinley, if you'll leave this up here for just a moment here, if you see that very dark, I don't know if my pointer is going to point here, right there, that very dark section there, that's what Cole talked about a couple weeks ago, the great unconformity. And what that means is the great, I have no idea. What uh, conventional scientists say is this little space of uh, just about a foot, and some places it's just inches, uh, this little space they would say represents up to about 500 billion years of time. But l let me tell you what, I, how I interpret the data based upon what I've been taught by other geologists is where they are standing, see right above them, is the great unconformity. When the flood happened... So the Grand Canyon's not there. What they are standing on and that great unconformity is where the initial uh, flood began to sweep away the surface of the earth with, set, uh, with the removal of sediment. Cole talked about it, erosion. And that was erosion. Right above that unconformity then, right there, really, is then where this new thousands of feet of sediment that have been removed all across the globe are now being deposited all across the globe in new layers. And these, from that great unconformity and above, those are the layers that these two geologists and many, many others say that is where the flood began depositing those layers very rapidly and quickly over the course of this year. I want to mention this because this is just so super cool to me. Where they are standing, right there, that is basement granite, there are no uh, fossils. There's, there, there, there's, there's no fossils in that and going down. Which tells us very possibly what they are standing on at that moment, right there, is creation weak rock that God created. That just blows my mind. And everything above that is our layers deposited by the flood, and then there's even more layers above that, which would have been deposited by just other right. uh, other things over the time. So I'm, I'm not sure where I am in my notes, but let me catch up. That's granite. Did I did I say it all? Did I get it all in there? I think you're there. there I'm there. I think We're you're there. there. Tab. No, after you're, you're fired up this morning. <laughs> that, when I start thinking about standing on rock that was part of creation and wasn't formed later by sedimentation, that's just crazy. Cool. Kind of scratches you in a good spot. It now. does. Yeah. I, that's really cool. So after, um, so again, we're just kind of on this journey. We're on this journey of possibilities. So, but, but some things that we do know. After uh, about five months or 150 days, apparently the ark uh, will come to a stop as it uh, contacts. It comes into contact with a mountain, and then at that point, apparently the water begins to recede. Genesis chapter eight, verse two. Kind of we jump into that. Says the underground water stopped flowing and the torrential rains from the sky were stopped. So the flood, flood waters gradually re receded from the earth after 150 days. Exactly five months from the time the flood began, the boat came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, 
So many people have, have, have really jumped onto verse 4, and they, we don't have time to stop off there. A lot of interesting stuff uh, if you, in your own personal study, pretty cool stuff. But, so this is a, kind of a five months uh, of time. We have this water ray, uh, going up, and then it begins to recede. And then after seven more months, apparently the water was far enough away from the ark that the ground around the ark apparently was... Uh, beginning to show. The water was low enough that, well, we began to see dry ground. And as a result of that, God says, okay, get off. And that's, we see that Genesis 8, 15. Then God said to Noah, leave the boat, all of you, you, your wives, your sons, their wives, release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, the small animals that scurry around the ground so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. And there we find, finally, after five weeks, we have reached the end of this global cataclysmic worldwide flood, right? It's over. No way, not even close. <laughs> That's what is, to me, really cool about it. Because this is what I was taught in church. I was taught, as many of you are going to follow me, I know there's one person in here specifically that's going to jump on it. The rains came down and the floods right came up. I can't we remember did all the, the hand motions, motions. All the hand but, motions, yeah. you did it in children's church, you know. So that's what we were taught, 40 days, 40 nights. Eh. No, no, it was, it was more than a, a gentle 40-day, 40 40-night 40 rain event. So then we go a step further. We say, okay, okay, 150 days. 150 days of water, and it's cataclysmic, earthquakes, volcanoes, tsunamis, you name it, right? 150 days. Yes, but that's not the end of the story either. It couldn't have been. So then you say, okay, seven more months. We've got this year-long flood. That's what the flood was, seven months. Months and, and absolutely 150 days, water goes up. Next seven months, water comes down. Lots of things are happening geologically. Happiness and rainbows, as, right? <laughs> as a result of that, and then that's the end, right? That is the end. No, it couldn't have been. You say, for, this is a journey of possibility, a journey of plausibility, and, and we have readily said that this is all about could it have gone down this way? But what we're about to talk about, there is no question. This if all of that happened, then this must have happened. And it's something called exponential decline. Exponential decline. You see, at the end of that seven months of receding water, there would have had to have been some exponential decline that would have taken place as a result, as kind of a chain reaction of all the geologic and atmospheric forces that were going on. There would have had to have been some exponential decline. In fact, many geologists estimate that as much as 80% of the changes on the surface of the earth actually happened in the first 20% of time following the flood. 80%. I mean, that's, that's relatively significant. Exponential decline as the earth kind of tries to get back right. Recovery, I mean, yeah. the flood's over. The flood's over. The 150 days of, of water rising is over. The, the next seven months of the water beginning to recede. We have dry land that is appearing. Basically, the flood's over, but the forces that created that flood are far from finished. After an earthquake, there's always a what? An aftershock. And we're talking about earthquakes on a scale that we have never seen before. There would have had to have been... Much more geologic activity following that one year of the flood. Earthquakes, volcanoes, uh, weather, which Harley's going to talk about here in just a minute. Just weather on a scale that, I mean, we can't fathom. And, and the erosion that would have been happening during that one year period of the flood would, would have to continue. It would have to. So it begs the question, I think, what was worse? Was the... Twelve months on the boat as all of these events begin, kind of the catalyst to this changing, earth-changing process, was that worse? Was the 150 days as the water is rising, was that worse? Or was it even worse when they stepped off? When they got off the boat because there's really not a lot of difference between the two because it was a very scary earth at this point. It would have had to have been. I mean, it would have been dry in some places, but some places on the earth would have had to have still been underwater. They would have had to have still been flooded. Um, there's actually evidence of that in North America. Uh, uh -huh. And again, this is not, uh, not kind of like creationist versus evolutionist, or the old earth, new earth. This is actually, it's, it's accepted that at it's some point in time, it is data. data inter the interpretation is where a lot of the questions are at, but the data tells us that the continent of North America was covered by a shallow sea at some point. 
Now, one interpretation of the data tells you one thing, but another interpretation could tell you something very, very different. But they agree it was there. They agree it was there. There was the Earth. The, the North American continent is covered by shallow sea. Um, another example is in the Amazon River Basin. It, it, the data tells us that at some point, the Amazon River Basin was flooded, all, without question, into the Andes Mountains. So, right. These are not actually questioned. These are accepted as facts. This is just and data. so what we're proposing, we're not proposing, but what we're teaching is what some many have proposed to say that there is a decline taking place in all of these. McKinley has a graphic to go on the screen here, and I want you to look at that. So at the most intense right there, that's at the, sorry, our folks online aren't going to see my pointer, but uh, the most intense right here. That is as the flood is happening. Here's the end of the flood a year later. And look, everything is still very intense. So this is what they're saying, that it began to taper off. But most of this activity of the changing of that geography happens in this 20% time here from the flood. And it's least intense here. And look, here's I just highlighted your ear. Um, it's uh, present day right here. Um, so it's a tapering off, a sloping of uh, activity that's happening. Everything was in decline um, and very much still transitioning. Um, and what we want to do is kind of talk about, I want to teach you uh, something, maybe a new concept or term for you, and the principle is called isostasy. All right, and we got this on the screen there for you, isostasy. And here's the definition. This is a geological term, and it means it's the equilibrium, that's the balance, things at a state of equal, that exists between parts of the Earth's crust, we talked about that, as if it consists of blocks, puzzle pieces, floating on the mantle, the underlying mantle of the Earth. Rising, uh, so here's what happens, as some of that uh, Earth's crust rises because of geological activity, uh, earthquakes, volcanoes, as some of it rises as material is added, um, then it is coming up. And then if we take material uh, away, then things begin sinking. Here's, here, I want to show you what this looks like. Um, yeah, I've got some right here. McKinley, go to the next one where we just have isostasy on the screen. I've got a pitcher of water here, and then I've got a, a big ice cube. Some of you in here are going to be able to see this on screen. It may be a little difficult. But I'm going to set this in this water. And so isostasy says this. If this is, uh, if this is the surface here, the mantle of the earth, when I push this ice cube down, it comes up and it bobs. And in the beginning, it bobs bigger and, and, and more dramatically, as I push it down, it goes down. It's a more dramatic, but as it begins to balance, it's going up and down, up and down, and then suddenly yeah. it slows. Kind of like a pendulum. Then. Kind of like, like a, a pendulum. pendulum. Yeah. And it slows. So imagine that then this ice cube, if we place it in something that is a little more uh, viscous, a, a little, has a little more... Uh, thickness and the elements in there hang on to each other a little stronger. This is a jar of honey. This is Vanessa. Well, there's two honeys up here. I'm her favorite honey. This is her, this is her favorite bee honey. And here we have, if we were to take an ice cube, and I'm not going to do that because it's going to run her honey, which would make it very tough on this honey. If we were to put that ice cube <laughs> inside of this honey, and I pushed it down, it's still going to go down, right? And it's going to come back up. Now, because of other things going on here with the honey, it's actually going to sit on top of the ice, uh, on top of the honey a little higher than it would in water. But, that's, but if you can imagine me pushing that ice cube down into the honey, it's going to go down, and it's going to come back up, but it's going to be a lot slower. And it's still going to do the whole thing of going up and down. It is seeking its equilibrium. It wants to have a, uh, a state of isostasy. It wants to be in balance. And it's going to go, but it's still going to happen. It's going to happen slower in the honey than in water. Now, imagine this thing called the mantle of the earth that is magma. And on top of that is floating the crust of the earth. And all of these crustal plates on the earth. And as things have happened, 
to push them uh, to push the things down, they are the earth is responding just like that. But if you can imagine how slow it would be in honey, imagine it on this gargantuan scale. It is now suddenly this this thing of of seeking this isostatic balance is now thousands of years, not seconds. And that's what isostasy is. And it's still happening today. That's, that's why we are still, as an earth and, and, and beings on this earth, the earth is still recovering from the flood. It is still seeking that equilibrium. It's just on a much larger, slower scale now because we're talking about it can't do what we're doing in water. We're talking about the crust of the earth floating on the mantle. So back to the decline picture here. We began a decline, an isostatic decline in earthquakes. The biggest earthquakes of ever were happening around the flood time. And they have since, ever since, they have begun to diminish into intensity. That is isostatic equilibrium at work. They were giant, but today we have what we have today. Here's another picture. This is Kingston Ridge. It is in California. That is a mountain range right there. Now here's the interesting thing about that mountain range in California. Now all mountains, as I am understanding from these geologists, for lack of a better word, they have something, whatever is above the ground, almost like uh, an iceberg, there's something under the ground that you don't see. And we could, for simplicity's sake, call that the root of the mountain, all right? So you've got the mountain range, and there's a root under it. The problem with this mountain range in California is that there is no root under it. It's just the range, which means if we wait long enough, that mountain range is going to seek down into the mantle of the earth because it is seeking its isostatic balance. But here's the, here's the freaky thing. They have found the root of the mountain. The very same rock structure and the chemical makeup of those rocks. They can tell where they come from and where they belong. The very same chemical makeup is 60 miles away underground, and that is where the root of that mountain is. So we're talking about an earthquake at some time, and we would propose probably sometime around or just after the flood. An earthquake that had such power that it was able to slice this mountain range off of its root and somehow vibrate that mountain range 60 miles away from its root. It just cut it off. We have never experienced a, an earthquake like that. But during the days just after the flood and during the flood, Noah did. So if we're talking about exponential decline, we're also talking about a decline in volcanoes. So back to that little pic. I think it's going to be down here now. There it is. So the same thing is true for volcanoes. The biggest and the baddest volcanoes, we have never seen the like. Yeah, let me show you another picture of a volcano set scenario. Here we go. On the big screen. Look, I'm showing up. I'm somewhere right in there. Um, so that giant cube at the bottom, represents uh, this volcano that happened sometime in our history in the, the western United States, and it was so enormous that it dumped so much ash, they were measuring just ash for this, so much ash in, this, in our history that that's how big that volcano was, represented in a cube, okay, in cubic miles, kilometers, okay? Go to the next one above that. That also happened at some point after that, and these probably were just in those days and that 20% of time just after the flood. And then look at that next green one. That's still big and giant and enormous. The yellow one is looking a little bit smaller, but we're, everything is in a state of decline, not as big. And then that little bitty tiny, tiny little red cube at the very top represents the amount of ash, which was a lot, but it just was a blip on the screen.
compared to the size of the volcanic activity and the earthquake activity that happened during and just after the flood. And that top one was Mount St. Helens. The top one is Mount St. Helens. Thank you. Yes, it is. That's Mount St. Helens. Wow. Now, let's also use that same principle to talk about the decline in the climactic intensity, the climate around us, what was happening with the weather. So back to the decline picture for a moment, okay? It was at its most intense during the flood, and this isostatic equilibrium that it is seeking, it's going to change and change and change and change and trying to hit this balance. It is an understatement to say that the biggest climate change that has ever happened on this earth the flood was the wettest point in the earth's history. That's just the way it is. And today our climactic events are very tiny. They're very small. They're little. You know, we understand hurricanes. We just experienced one that raided down to a tropical storm by the time it got to us. Here's a picture of that. I think I have it in there. Here's Hurricane Laura. That's Hurricane Laura right there. So um, Hurricane Laura, we understand hurricanes today. But we understand them on a scale of category one to five. We don't understand them on a scale of uh, ancient times. Uh, this, if you could just imagine this hurricane not being big enough to cover up the state of Louisiana. No, if you could imagine a hurricane um, that was uh, what they call now a, a hypercane, a hypercane. And before I say that, I just want to give you a little teaser. We're getting ready to get to the Ice Age. It's coming up, but it'll be in a moment. But a hypercane is something that would stretch, perhaps, to give you an idea of the size, um, it would stretch from the edge of North America over to the edge of Europe. That would be a hypercane. But not one that kind of moves through. So often the hypercanes are stationary maybe even for as long as 100 years. Right, and the cool thing to me, one of the cool things about it is really a lot of what we're talking about right now, It's this is not an if or. It's not a you either believe this or you believe that. This is actually accepted uh, data. This is just information that both, if you will, and I don't want to make it into an argument right. or into a different sides of, the, of a coin, but basically both data uh, uh, viewpoints, both worldviews say, yeah, this stuff happens. We know this stuff happens. We know this stuff did happen. The data tells us that it did. And in fact, it not so much so that it's the idea of a hypercane is not just a new concept. Atmospheric scientists have been watching a hypercane on the planet of Jupiter for over 300 years. We have a picture of that right now. It's that um, red it's spot. The big, yeah, the big, so the, you know, you've heard it called the giant red spot, maybe if you're, you're kind of into astronomy, uh, but it's, it's, it's a hypercane. It's this hypercane that's been going on for over 300 years, and that hypercane is actually the size, roughly the size of the Earth. So this isn't a new concept. This isn't something that at, an atmospheric scientist would say, no, it's not possible, it can't happen. They'd say, sure, it can happen. This is uh, very possibly something that, in fact, has happened in Earth's history. So um, it's, it's interesting because the amount of water that would have had to have been trapped. And again, we're not even on that journey of possibility with this statement. It's kind of an if-then. If, if this happened, these things would have had to have happened. So if the amount of water uh, that could have been trapped, not only by the draining of a global cataclysmic worldwide flood, but also these potentially century-long hypercanes on this scale, something that we can't comprehend, uh, an epoch in time that we can't comprehend, if you will, then it's very possible, very well, probable, that they would have formed massive lakes on the surface of the earth. And North America, of course, being one of those cases. And again, modern geology agrees. They say, look, there was a giant lake that was formed in the area of Arizona at some point in earth's history. And um, over the course of the flood and all of the, this rain that's going on after the as we think of it, the flood, during this process of exponential decline, uh, these lakes, this specific lake, it would have been much larger than even the Great Lake. Yes, we're talking huge, maybe as big as 10 times in terms of the amount of water volume that is available. And it's actually theorized that uh, some of this lake's natural dams that would have uh, you know, kind of created the lake over the course of this uh, century-long process 
uh, that these, they would have breached. Naturally, of course they would. That's what we see. Then we, we understand that those things happen. And so they would have breached, and one by one they would have been flushed out, and it's very possible, it's theorized, that that is actually what formed the Grand Canyon with potentially 10 times the amount of water found in the Great Lakes today. And you say, wait a second, hold on, time out. No, that is not what I've been told. The textbooks tell me right. What? The Grand Canyon was formed by the Colorado River. Of course, that's, that's what the textbooks tell us. That's what, in fact, if you go to the Grand Canyon today, as, as John and Melissa did a couple of weeks ago, there's signs that say this was formed by that. And if you look at that, the Colorado River, you go, man, that's really small. That's, that's kind of dinky. It's, I, it, really? Well, it's interesting because actually modern geologists, regardless of which side of the coin they fall on, it's not accepted anymore no. that In the fact, Colorado they, River formed it. They have a new term for it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how new it is, but the geolog geologists pretty much agree that's called an underfit river. Right. It, it can't do it. it it's can't not do possible. It. Mm -hmm. You say, well, wait a second. The textbooks still say the Colorado River. They do. The signs at the Grand Canyon still say the Colorado River. They do. But geology says, no, there's no way that that's the way this went down. In fact, modern geologists today say the Grand Canyon had to have been formed by some type of a catastrophic event. And so creationists are over here like, hey, wait, I got it. We, we, we got a possibility of maybe some ideas of how this would go down. And yet it's not in the textbooks. It hasn't caught up. The textbooks have yet to catch up to a idea that's pretty well accepted. Right. Still says the Colorado River, even though geologists say, no, that's not the case. Um, it's just, to me, that's very interesting. They have bought in. Yeah, bought into still, the worldview. Even though the geologists now today largely are saying that didn't happen. You know, at, at this point still, the climate, um, as we're on this timeline here, the climate is still recovering. Um, it's still recovering from the flood and all of that activity. Um, Right now in our current history of the earth, the place that gets the most rain on earth is in this region of Hawaii, a very specific part of Hawaii that gets about 300 inches of rain a year. That is a lot of rain. But after the flood and the, the time as this is still in exponential decline, 300 inches of rain would be the driest part of the earth. There was no dry part of the earth at that time. It was all getting abundant amounts of rain. Israel today, it is among the deserts, but not then. Then, do you know what it looked like then? It was flowing with milk and honey. Everything was green then. But there were two parts of the earth, though, that got a little bit of special treatment. <laughs> And one area was around the uh, Antarctica, and the other was in North America, somewhere uh, around a, a region of the Hudson Bay. Something very unique began to happen there. With all the ocean water being warm, and now the continents, especially in some locations, were beginning to cool, potentially these two hypercanes or something like that began sitting over those two areas for about a hundred years just dumping water that now has turned in those two areas to snow and ice. And for a hundred years just dumping in those areas snow and ice which turned out to be miles and miles of snow and ice that was deposited creating on about one-third of the land surface of the earth was now covered in ice and snow, and that became the Ice Age. It's a great movie. Yeah, it is a great, a great movie. movie. Um, that became the Ice Age. Now, as the climate continued to recover, those ice sheets, after some centuries, began uh, to melt back. The glaciers began to melt back, and things were drying out more and more in an exponential way until we get to where we have today many areas that are uh, so, deserts. So please do not throw anything up here when I make this statement, okay? Because this is going to be a controversial That's statement. That's true. Yeah, um, and we don't for, mean it that We don't way. mean it to be no. uh, controversial at all, but th this, is, this is pre-polarizing, this, this yes. thing that we're about to talk about. But don't let it be. As we're drying out, 
in this process of exponential decline, getting farther and farther away from the flood. And, and, and as the earth is working in this process of isostasy, getting back into this state of equilibrium, global warming is real. But the reason for it is because the earth is simply recovering from the flood. We're drying out. Things are drying out. Again, from this perspective of is it possible? Yeah. Is it plausible? It's, it's, it's isostasy. It's, it's this process of equilibrium. Yeah. Now, as we stated at the beginning, we, in fact, we stated it numerous times over the course of these five weeks, um, we're not arguing with science. In any way, shape, form, or fashion. This is not an argument. This is, a not, uh, this is not arguing about what happened. All this really is is about looking at it from a different perspective, a different worldview. There's really not a lot of argument about what the data tells us has happened. It happened. We just simply are potentially looking at it from a different perspective. We're interpreting the, the data, data. Yeah. from a different perspective. So we're not arguing with science. In fact, all science belongs to God. The laws of thermodynamics were put here by God. The law of gravity was put here by God. So we don't have to sit up here and argue with science. We're just interpreting the same data, maybe from a different perspective. So all we're trying to do and all we hope that we have accomplished over the course of this now five weeks is to those of us, myself at the very top of the list, that was told that the Bible and science cannot go together. No, it doesn't work. It is uh, the immovable force and the unstoppable object. They cannot coexist in the same world. For those of us that experience that in school and in college and, and really every time, because I, I love the Discovery Channel and all, and every time you flip on the Discovery Channel and you see that and you're like, ah, man, that just doesn't fit. For all of us that have experienced that, we're simply asking you, is it possible? Not I believe it, I don't believe it, not this is the way it happened, because again, we weren't there, we, we have no idea how all this went down, we just, we're on a journey of possibility. Is this plausible in your mind? Is a global flood plausible? We could only touch on a very, very, very small part of the science and the data interpretation that is available. We, we could only touch on a very a minuscule amount. Time being one reason, but yeah. another reason being because so much of it was completely over our heads. Um, and so all that we were trying to do, we've been trying to do for the last few weeks, is simply to better understand and to try to better explain these vast amounts of data that's available for anybody and just simply under explain it from this perspective so that we can all look at it and we can all say, you know what, it's possible. Because at the end of the day, no matter what, regardless of which side of the fence we find ourselves on or which side of the coin we find ourselves on, the truth is, it happened some way, and I can trust God yeah. that that's yeah. a fact. And that's exactly what Noah did. Noah trusted God. When God gave him the commands, Noah trusted him. When God said, it is time to start over, Noah trusted God. Verse 18 tells us, so Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives left the boat. God said, it is time, leave the boat. You can trust me, leave the boat. And they did. And the, verse 19, and all the large animals, small animals, and the birds came out of the boat pair by pair. Verse 20 says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. I'm going to pause right here for just a moment. He built an altar to the Lord. He began to worship God in that moment. He, he worshiped God as he was told in that day to worship God. That's how he worshiped God. Because God, remember what we said in, in week number one, I think, about the ark? That, that word is only used in two places in the Bible. One there with Noah, the ark. And the other place was with Moses and that little basket that his mother built. Very same word. His mother built an ark. Just had different dimensions. Noah was saved by the ark, by the work of God. Moses was saved by his little bitty tiny basket ark. All by the work of God. My friends, God has an ark for you too. Here's what happens. God said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to destroy the entire globe again and the people in it and on it and the animals on it with a flood again. I'm not going to do that worldwide. 
verse 13. He says, God says, I've placed a rainbow in the clouds. It is my sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. And here was what he was basically saying in that covenant. Verse 15, I'm going to remember my covenant with you and all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all of life. That was the last time that the entire earth was covered in a flood. That was the last time. That is not going to happen again. We have God's word on that, his promise. That's what the rainbow is all about. We have his promise. But he didn't promise he was never going to destroy again. He is. Jesus said this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-7. through 7. He says, most importantly, this is Jesus speaking. He says, most, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, this is Peter speaking reminding them of what is Jesus is going to be uh, about and happening as this progresses. Peter says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers are going to come. They're going to come mocking the truth and following their own desires. We talked about that last week. Verse 4, they will say, well, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? I mean, they're looking at their watch, saying, yeah, he, yeah, he hadn't come so far. It's been 2,000 years. He, has he forgotten about you? Is this all a big hoax? Is this just a big joke? This whole religion thing, following Jesus thing? They'll say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same. In other words, it has been uniform. What is happening today and what is happening with geology and the climate and volcanoes and earthquakes, that has happened just like this for all of eternity uh, since the earth was created by itself. It's just always happened. Everything has remained the same the world, since the world was first created. Verse 5, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens and the world by his command and that he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. And then, verse 6, he says, and he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. So God now has told us this is never going to happen again. We have his word on it, a worldwide flood. But the next one is not going to involve water. Peter tells us the next one involves fire. Verse 7, by the same word, the one that called in the flood, by the same word, the present heavens and the present earth that we now have, it has been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Oh, that sounds harsh. It sounds harsh. But here's the thing. We have had 2,000 years of fair warning. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 46, I have come as the light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. He goes on in verse 48 and he says, but all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth that I have spoken. God has given us warning, fair warning. And I guess if we just want to boil this series down to one thing, one phrase, it would just simply be this. We can trust God because he died for us. Jesus. God himself, God who put on the flesh and the blood of man came to this earth so that he could rejoin us with God the Father. And it was going to take a sacrifice to do that. A sacrifice so big that it was going to take the death of God to do that. But here's the problem. God can't die. And that's why God put on the flesh and blood of man and he came to this earth as his plan, as we were told. Go back and listen to some of our series on that, talking about how Jesus, his plan all from the beginning was to come and to die for us. And he did. 
And today we can trust God. All we have to do is admit that we have blown it and we have lived our lives on our own terms, on our own ways. And yes, we thought those terms were good. And yes, we thought we were doing the best for ourselves. We were making those decisions. And God says there's no decision that we can really make in and of ourselves that is going to lead us to a connection with God. One decision, that's to admit that we can't do it, that we are separated from God because of the way we think and the way we have lived. And the Bible calls that sin. And if we will simply believe that Jesus is who he is and he did what he said he would do, that he, it is God himself who came to this earth to die for our sins, and he did that. And three days later, he rose again and walked out of that tomb, and he is now waiting in heaven for that last person. He only knows who it is, that last person to say, I submit my life to you. And my friends, it is on like Donkey Kong. It is over. That's when the fire has that's It happens. Now, we simply want to say, will you admit that you're separated from God if you are still? Will you just simply believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and three days later he rose again? And will you confess to him right now that you are making him the boss of your life? And there's nothing special you need to come down here and do. You do it from right where you are. You admit, Jesus, right now I'm separated from you. Are you doing that? You admit, right now I'm separated from you because of my sin. And now you believe, yes, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. Three days later you rose again. Are you believing that? Do you believe that? And now you confess this change of ownership. Jesus, I had my life. I was living my life. But because you died for me, you bought it. And I am confessing right now, this life belongs to you. It's yours. You're my boss. I'm following you. And if you're doing that right now, I want you to know this. The Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that when one person submits their life to Jesus, that the angels in heaven throw a party. And I believe someone has done that either in this room or someone listening with us at home right now. And the angels in heaven are throwing a party in your honor for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, I pray that our friends who are here and who are listening online would simply let us know if they have submitted their life to you, if they have, if they have admitted that they need you, and if they're believing in you, and if they're confessing that you are now their boss. And God, I pray that we could also join in that celebration with them. It is in the name of Jesus, our amazing Savior, that we pray these things, and we offer our lives to you, Jesus. Amen.